Um, we're really honored uh, to be here with such an incredible group of people um, and along with the participants um, that are coming in from all around the world and sending us their hellos in the chat. My name is Shireen Sekari, and I am, it's really my pleasure to be part of um, a whole series of panels that Laura Albust in particular um, should be commended on that is marking the 50th um, anniversary of the Journal of Palestine Studies. I'm going to say a few words about JPS um, that everyone in this room is very familiar with. JPS is a multidisciplinary journal, and since its founding in 1971, has been the English language academic journal of record on Palestinian affairs. The journal has published original articles that span the humanities and social sciences, including but not limited to history, political science, uh, law, economic development, geography, sociology, anthropology, ethnography, gender, queer studies, literature, and the arts. Um, contributions on communities that have historical, cultural, and political ties to Palestine are also of deep interest to the journal. So we're really here um, as part of a series of both cross-disciplinary and cross-generational conversations and questions about what is Palestine uh, studies in our kind of political and intellectual commitments, what lessons does it offer, and um, what can it teach us both about the past, the present, and the future. And in this vein, there's so many people that are in this room uh, <laughs> that, are, um, that aren't necessarily here on the panel that are part of this conversation and so dear to us. And I want to really emphasize the um, deep political commitments of these scholarly questions um, and how much they are really grounded in those political imperatives, um, political principles and political visions. Um, and I wanted part in particular Nadine and I have been um, probably since we've met having this conversation and thinking it through um, across multiple disciplines as well. And so I want to hand it to her now um, to talk to us some more about our conversation for the coming hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's such an honor to be with everyone and to have been working with uh, Shireen uh, and all the amazing folks at the Journal of Palestine Studies. Um, I wanted to just give a little context to um, this conversation, which um, requires me to uplift um, some of the challenges uh, related to doing interdisciplinary scholarship at the intersections of Palestine Studies and critical ethnic studies, which might include certain strands of American studies, um, or US empire studies, the strand of American studies where Palestine studies in American studies has emerged. And what I wanna uplift about that, you know, this challenge of thinking about Palestine studies historically and new trends in American studies around Palestine is that the methodologies of American studies emerge as in praxis. There's no one methodology. Uh, methodology emerges out of the specificity and nuances of the project, especially since in many cases, the goal of a research project or the agenda 
is to uplift, map, or analyze intersections of multiple forms of power, um, multiple sites, bringing multiple sites into conversation with each other, and even asking the question, how does research related to one community or struggle, um, how do our theoretical lenses change when we rethink a particular struggle through the lenses of another? So for example, how do we rethink, say, indigenous struggles in the US through the lens of immigration studies or diaspora studies and vice versa? So bringing struggles, communities, fields in a conversation with each other necessitates uh, the constant formation of new methodologies. Um, and so I just to uplift for people who are not in American studies, ethnic studies, and I'll put these in the chat, three examples to me, the best examples of interdisciplinary um, critical ethnic studies methodologies would be the work by Vicente Diaz and J. Kealani Kanwai, sorry of the mispronunciation, um, who um, basically created the methodology of native Pacific cultural studies or um, uh, indigenous Pacific um, cultural studies related to the Pacific by interconnecting the study of water with the study of land through cultural studies methodologies. Or we can think of Erica Edwards' new book on black terror, rethinking histories of black feminism, radical black feminism through the lenses of the US war on terror or Jody Kim's new book that opened up the transnational realities of the Pacific for Asian and Asian American studies and is doing um, what Black British cultural studies did for Black studies by opening up theorizations about the Atlantic Ocean. And so given the, the necessity of cre constantly creating new methodologies, we run up against this challenge around um, disciplinary approaches that, um, and, and not to say one is better or worse, they both have, you know, they have different goals. Um, disciplinary methodologies that might see the methodology of a particular discipline as, uh, you know, one methodology as producing uh, particular results. And so uh, I don't want to talk much because I'm uh, just introducing the panel, but um, I, I want to draw on what I just said to say that uh, what happens then is that we've seen trends in, in American studies, Palestine studies, um, around this wittingly or unwittingly, um, you know, through the, because of this expansiveness and openness, methodological expansiveness and openness, I would argue um, there's a tendency to overlook scholarship rooted in Palestine and theory making, and also because of the problem of audience, not the problem, but the challenge of audience. Like you're doing American studies for a US-based audience and maybe audiences that are in black studies or indigenous studies. Um, so I think it's a question of methodology and a question of audience that have, uh, you know, kind of uh, produced this challenge around obscuring or even, um, creating a lack of accountability to the genealogy of ideas that have emerged grassroots, you know, from the grassroots in Palestine, from the Palestinian struggle and Palestine pal scholarship by and about Palestinians in Palestine and in its diaspora. Um, so what we wanna do here is just kind of talk through, um, you know, how do we uh, take responsibility for um, citational accountability for, 
um, being more grounded and, and, and doing Palestine work in these fields in ways that can both continue the, the beauty and expansiveness of um, creating new fields, new methodologies, new conversations, while uh, avoiding the, um, the, some of the issues that um, we just alluded to. So we're here to talk about a politics of citational accountability in that, within that um, context and committing to the co-creation of ideas in ways that center and recenter Palestine and Palestinians, especially since when we talk about Palestine studies, we're talking about a uh, context of decolonization. Um, so how do we bring that commitment to decolonization to the way that we do research? So we gave the panelists two questions and the way the panel will um, emerge is that we'll go around and we'll, we'll actually ask each panelist to introduce themselves practicing decolonial feminist methodologies in the panel. The panelists will introduce themselves and we'll go in this order of Rana, Mezna, Noor, and Tharit. And the first question is uh, for you all in this order. Um, if you could name a concept or text from Palestine studies that has inspired you and, and just share a bit about you know, why that you think that's so central to your thinking, um, practice, political commitments and research in Palestine studies. Do I go now? Yeah. Um, thank you, Nadine. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Nadine and Shadeen, um, for this kind and generous invitation and for all that you do and all the work that you do. And just thank you guys for being in our world. Um, I also like to thank Lada for all that she does. Every time there's an IPS show, Lada is always the one that puts it together for us, and she does a remarkable job in doing so. Um, my name is Rana Barakat. I teach history um, and a few other things at Budizate University. I'm also the new um, director of the Budizate University um, Museum. And I hope to get a chance to talk about this. Um, so the question was asked, and I'm gonna do what a lot of us do as students and as professors is not answer it directly. Um, so beyond thanking you for the generosity of this invitation, I kind of want to blame you because how am I supposed to know how to write about Palestine? I suppose the original, the original question, I, I, my training has been about how not to write about Palestine. We're very good about critique, but I think the challenge in this question is how to actually write about Palestine. Um, and my, my knee-jerk response is that I'm trying to live it. Um, and um, you know, that's how I write about it. So that's maybe the key. It's about how we live and live through, through it. This is one of the influences that I've gained in thinking about that, reading within and outside of Palestine and Palestinian studies. Um, from my own work, as embedded in the description to this roundtable, is in relation to, and what Nadine just argued, uh, just talked about in conversation with um, indigenous studies. And I would argue that Palestine and Palestine, Palestinian studies are actually a part of indigenous studies. Um, what does that mean to have that conversation with between peoples? Um, and in my mind, I would like to think that my work is also about peoplehood as Palestinians. So I do want to thank you because this invitation offered me the opportunity to revisit JPS. And um, before the panel actually started, we were comparing notes. So those, those of us who are old enough to actually live in hard, real libraries, remember going into the libraries and going to DS-119 and sitting there on the ground or whatever table we could find and reading hard copies of volumes of journals when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to work on. 
I remember going through Shu'un al-Palestinian, Karmel, Dirisat al-Palestinian, and yes, of course, the Journal of Palestine Studies, amongst others. Recently, the JPS has, uh, has had a series of essays um, with hidden gems and classic essays, uh, classic pieces, asking for people, including Nadine, who wrote very eloquently about how they work through the JPS as an archive. So treating all of this as an archive is a moment for pause, JPS as an archive. So today I went over JPS as an archive. And I thought, I thought how similar my own feelings were to those who were writing these essays recently about how I had preconceived notions and I was surprised by my, what I found today in rereading in terms of critique. To be honest, like others, I was surprised by the hidden gems that I re, 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 rediscovered while JPS, because JPS represented something for so long in context of politics, um, I didn't remember, or I needed to be reminded of the nuance that existed within JPS from the very beginning. Just like us, this field of knowledge that we're calling Palestine and Palestinian studies, and just like us in our peoplehood is nuanced. So thinking about JPS or Palestine studies in terms of an archive, really, we all sort of share this lived experience. How many times have we read permission to narrate or reflections on exile amongst us? Really, how many times have we read it? Every time I read Reflection on Exile, I get more angry. I don't even really entirely know why I get angry, but I guess I know I'm always angry. So I have to admit that I now feel a kind of similarity and as well as, well as profound difference with Edward Said. How many times have we used Walid al-Khaldi's Pandalit in our own work in teaching and writing? Because you know, why did so many people pay so much attention to Zionists, new or otherwise, in terms of history and history writing? We had Walid al-Khaldi. How often have we re revisited Bayan Noahid al-Fut just to remember all the intricate details because she is quite literally an encyclopedia. How many of us have used presence and absence and memory and forgetfulness so much so that they no longer even really belong to Darwish? How fundamentally foundational is Rosemary Sayyaf? Lots of folks now think, think without needing to think about her that peasants were and have become revolutionaries. And so with all this in mind, and spending a lot of time in the last two days with JPS as an archive, I want to turn this question into a confession. The concept that I most and most often challenged with and by is my own sense of Palestinian nationalism. I said it, I put it out there. I'm still a nationalist. So obviously, obviously to this question, I need to add, to add the word challenge to the inspiration that Shadeen and Nadine gave us. And if I, if I may become a bit personal with this, I need to say this here because this is fundamentally personal. It is about our intellectual and political lives, but it's also and fundamentally foundationally per personal because it's about us as a people. I wanna say that and say it over and over again because I want to be in conversation with every person in this virtual room. I want to listen to everything. I want to learn from each one of you and listen. And I love that I have a space to talk in this generative way or I hope it's generative. This is about a conversation. And so in light of that conversation, I wanna share with you the trials and travails of this year's personal challenge in my own sense, which I've come to call my existential crisis with my Palestinian nationalism. This crisis has been a long time coming, my nationalism. But I mean, really, how crazy was 2021? Seriously, crazy. Ongoing refusal, ongoing resistance, and then, and then in June and July, a confrontation with ourselves. Fighting the PA is one thing, that's fine. Fighting ourselves is another, and I cannot see what's happened and is happening otherwise. This summer was hard. 
It wasn't new, as I said before, but this, converse, this confrontation was with ourselves. It was me with myself. I mean, really, how can, I can talk about Oslo, we all can. We can talk about the institutional aftermath of Oslo for what it is and what it was, part and parcel of settler colonials in Palestine. JPS, by the way, is a useful archive into getting to this point. But this concept of nationalism, this concept of nationalism is what was confronted on the streets. I mean, I understand, and I myself pontificate often about my refusal, our refusal of modernity and colonial history and the legacy of the nation state as a political imposition. I know the basic outlines of our own history and I've spent the better part of the last decade interrogating myself openly in the form of teaching in Palestine about the PLO and what the legacy that we have and how it is part of the legacy that we have now. And this year, all of that, all of that came into a bloody and fantastic contradiction. I suppose I've always wanted to see Palestinian nationalism as otherwise. Maybe it's seeing peoplehood as a verb and our peoplehood as the verb that holds this kind of nationalism, but I'm struggling with that in light of all that we saw this year. Getting free is most certainly not getting a state. I know that, but still can't Palestine have a different kind of nationalism? Can it be, can it not be? If not, then what is it? My challenge, I think, is the challenge that is the clearest part of how I read JPS as an archive today and yesterday. Our collective challenge with and through Palestinian nationalism as a means of oppression and repression, and also as a potential means of resistance and liberation. This is what JPS has represented, and I think it will continue to speak to, through, and with this. Thanks. Shall I go ahead? Um, thank you so much, Hannah. That was beautiful. And I remember those days in the library um, with immense funness. And I think that reflection around conversation um, being so formative for me as well um, in my thinking around Palestine. And actually, I think conversation and the politics of listening are also something that um, ground my sensibility around what it means to do Palestine, study Palestine, but also to study Palestine as a Palestinian and to study Palestine as a Palestinian in the Shaddat and to study Palestine as a Palestinian who was born stateless, to study Palestine as a Palestinian woman, to study Palestine as a child of peasants, to study Palestine who's only two generations away from illiteracy. So, um, and I, so, and I say all of these things because one of the prompts that Laura gave us is to ask us to think about one piece. And it was really hard. And I had spent, <clears throat> you know, one of the things I'm constantly revisiting because of, you know, of JPS is because it's this, this archive indeed and repository of, of pedagogical material. When I want to teach Palestine, where do I turn to first, especially in English, but to JPS? Um, so I'm constantly revisiting it, constantly looking, constantly doing searches. Um, and I hope we can talk a little bit about the question of access and open access publications later. But, but I think that it is in an archive, it's a pedagogical archive as much as it is an intellectual kind of self um, challenge to the self. And so what I would like to nominate as a document or an article or an essay that has most inspired, it's complicated. I have a complicated, very complicated relationship to this essay, 
but it's Nabil Shatz, High Level Palestinian Manpower, Volume 1, Issue 2, 1972. It's a research study of 16 pages that is an attempt to um, explicate or um, quantify and enumerate the educational attainments and professional attainments of Palestinians in the 20 years after the Mecca. Or, you know, in, and th there's several levels and scales in which I want to talk about this piece. First, I'll say that the only sentence that I absolutely agree with is the first one, when he says, in spite of the publicity given by the world to the Palestine problem, little has yet been learned about the Palestinians themselves. This sentence, I was like, that's right. And then it's a little bit of a struggle from there on. Because what we learned from this essay is in the 1972 moment, this economist, Palestinian economist, um, who was trained at Penn, comes to the PLO and becomes part of the planning department of the PLO, um, and as well as an assistant professor at the AUB, and makes the claim and makes and stakes a political point behind it that the Palestinians are ready to govern themselves. And it was my, it is my kind of purpose. I, I took up the purpose when I engaged this first. At first, when I read it, um, I thought, oh, cool. Now I know, at least in part, where the mythology around Palestinians being the most educated refugees in the world comes from. This is where it comes from. But it also allowed me to understand for the first time um, what the stakes were for Palestinian, Palestinian intellectuals involved in the PLO or part of the PLO and thought of themselves as part of this nationalist movement um, for the kinds of professionalizations that they, um, they, 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 desi they, they desired for our people. Um, so it is an, a, a kind of antagonistic conversation that I have with Nabil Shah. And it's an antagonist, but it is also one. And, and, and the first time I read it, it was also a very angry engagement. This is not what education is for. This is not these, there are contradictions to our attainment of education. Education was also subjugation. Education forgot many, many Palestinians, left many Palestinians behind. Education was often on the backs of other Palestinians. There are class dynamics you're not recognizing, et cetera, et cetera. But what I also began to slowly develop because of my conversations with other Palestine and Palestinian scholars, and also in all honesty, age and a forgiveness of myself and a, and a compassion for myself. And to be compassionate about our um, intellectual ancestors, to not judge them in particular by what they end up becoming. In this case, one of the primary architects of the Oslo economic um, structure but to think of them in that moment, to think of them as young scholars who returned from their education abroad, who are trained in an educational system in the US and an economic logic in the US, and attempt to sort of wedge it into a nationalist project in ways that they thought was productive. And maybe in a way they were right. Um, 
we are some of the most educated people in the world. Um, and it was in part him and, and those around him and in that department who were thinking so in, in, amid so much struggle in Beirut um, in 1972 about what they can do and how they can leverage their knowledge and their intellectual um, lineages and their intellectual um, skill set to this struggle um, and put their own lives on the line for it. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it with that. But I think that this thing of thinking about our ancestors, as it were, our intellectual ancestors with compassion, with a with with and and a rejection of a kind of teleological condemnation of them politically has been an exercise, at least for me, in patience, in mercy, and a kind of a grace in palace in the Palestinian struggle. Hi, um, thanks, like everyone said, to, to IPS, to Shibin and Nadine, and, uh, and to Bena and Mezna for starting us off with incredibly powerful ideas. Um, and uh, in particular, I'm so glad, Mezna, you brought up some of the things you did there towards the end, which is actually um, something that I want to talk about for, this, for the second question uh, later. Um, but for this, I'll start off um, with a bit of a story. So several years ago, I conducted a bit of a social experiment and I pulled excerpts from Cesar's uh, discourse on colonialism, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, and Kenafani's thoughts on change and blind language. Um, they were all unlabeled, uh, they had no geographic markers, and I asked five peers to try and guess which were by who. No one got them all, everyone mixed them up. Um, now, to be clear, the story is not indicative, right? It is not meant to be indicative of these incredibly bright young scholars not being well-read, nor is it indicative of a lack of originality or specific contributions by these authors. Instead, it's emblematic, in my opinion, of how they were and are one part of something much bigger that binds them. So Julian Goh, for example, would put them all, or at the very least, Cesar and Fanon in what he calls this first wave of post-colonial thought, one that he says arises directly from anti-colonial struggle. And in his construction, he puts people like Edward Said and Spivak and others um, occupying what he calls a second wave originating from academia. And though in many ways, Goh's work is uh, brilliant in an attempt to encourage prioritization of lived experience and legacies of imperialism, it also assumes incorrectly, in my opinion, an end to the first wave. For Palestinians and indigenous peoples the world over and innumerable other locales, not only is the first wave incredibly vast in regards to who we would include and cite as formative and inspirational, but it is also ongoing in a colonial present. So I happened to read these three texts for the first time almost a decade ago, and I did so coincidentally within weeks of each other and in the midst of writing a thesis on youth politics, Kenafeni's words on blind language and empty discourse and on the circulation of young blood in the body politique rang louder and louder in my mind. And though he is speaking in the aftermath of 1967, the principles certainly supersede a temporal moment. And they implore us not to confine application to rigid periodization. 
the reflection of the concepts he puts forth, and more importantly, the practice of grappling with the realities of defeat and patriarchal structures continues and is an enduring lived experience in Palestinian resistance movements today. So part of my answer to the question posed to us to name a concept or text is indeed Kenafani's essay, but perhaps the more significant inspiration is understanding Palestinian writing as lettered life. So lettered life that arises from anti-colonial struggle, lettered life of pasts as well as present and futures, lettered life that should be at the center of Palestinian studies as a field, but also of any study of Palestine. So I actually kept this part um, brief and I'll stop there. Thank you, Noor. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, thanks for including me in this conversation. Laura, thank you for your work uh, that makes this possible behind the scenes. Um, I'm so happy to be celebrating an archive that has taught me so much, as so many of us have said. Um, in the spirit of resisting the ongoing Nakba and its drive to erase our expansive presence from the land and within the, and within the literature, I'd like to attempt what Mezna has described as a conjuring of those still present to practice and recognize the concept from Palestinian studies that most inspires me, a Palestinian feminist practice. Now, rather than attempt to define what I understand this practice to be, not that I would as imagine assuming such an authority, I'm going to center the work of the women on this panel as they embody and make uh, visible this practice in their everyday lives. So all of you have had important roles in my intellectual journey and your scholarship teaches us that we cannot separate the bodies of knowledge in that we study from the bodies in which that knowledge is produced. So in this regard, I've understood your everyday practices within and beyond the text to be examples of the living tradition through which we resist our erasure, Palestine as method. And forms of retrieval, social scale, citation, and the archive of the Palestinian left, Mezna combines this con conjuring with an expansion of the scale of the social that asks us to take seriously the lives and bodies marked by disappointment and scarred by violence. Here, the call to record memories is a practice against citational erasure. In expanding the scale of the social, Mezna affirms our lived experience in the text and reminds us that the classroom is a site of political mobilization and a site of subject formation. But before forms of retrieval, in my memory, Mezna cautioned me against the hierarchies of scale and the importance of a textured analysis as she walked me through writing my first literature review for my master's thesis in 2017. I really was so nervous and had no idea what to do. And this is that, you know, those moments of those little conversations that save us and that really have made us who we are, I think, today. I would only be later as I continued to study Palestine with other mentors and had my own struggles with and against the archive that I would come to appreciate how this attention to texture, to the texture of our lives, provides us with the knowledge necessary to reveal our practice. In recognizing and utilizing Mezna's methodological intervention and, the, and your political work as a teacher, I hope the Palestinian feminist practices of Shireen, Nadine, um, <clears throat> Rena, and Noor become more visible. Shireen, in all honesty, all of this is inspired by your practice and the guidance you've provided, with me, provided me over the years. Uh, you have a radical critique rooted in an ethic of love that is transformative beyond the written word. In Men of Capital, your ability to move towards the discomfort and gr uh, with grace and nuance is on full display. In making a colonial economy visible through the calculations of Men of Capital and Women of Thrift, you reveal to us a corporal process through which the Nehta shaped territory and subjectivity. 
In doing so, you draw attention to the co-constitutive relation between Palestinian bodies and Palestinian land. Even further, you provide us with a way to understand how the logics of scarcity continue to structure relations of exclusion into our present. So of course, it is no surprise that your practice is one of abundant inclusion, whether it be an accountability to a politics of citation that seeks to bring up everyone before us or the political stakes of your teaching, mentorship, organizing, as we're all sitting in today. Um, with that, there are many memories that we could go to, but to practice your praxis, and I'm sorry everyone for the alliteration, let's move towards the difficult places. Let's return to 2019 at Mesa, where Shireen moderated a panel of Palestinian scholars from American and Ethnic Studies. And when you rightly named your erasure in our work, you offered us a lesson in the patience, vulnerability, and courage required to move towards our alienation for the sake of transforming it. In recognizing your exclusion, you provided me with a gift and possibility to repair what you have described as our perpetual separation from each other, the ongoing Nakba. And in doing so, you taught me that by recognizing each other, we can more fully come to understand ourselves and the questions that keep us up at night. And it was from that point on where I started to consciously experience what you meant by Palestine as method. It was through your Palestinian praxis that these relations not only became visible, but they took on their transformative, or the way that their transformative role uh, changes our lives became more apparent. So I hope that as I continue to recognize the gifts that you all offer us, uh, that this Palestinian feminist practice and the responsibility that it entails will also become uh, clearer in the second part of this question. Got it. You're so generous. I, you almost brought, all of you almost brought me to tears. And I think I'm just going to speak back really quickly. Some of the ideas, um, people, temporalities and methods that I heard. Um, I think these, these, these sessions are so fruitful and we don't always, um, we're not always able to, um, you know, record all the wonderful ideas that have come across. So getting free through being, Rana, I thought was an incredible invitation to start us off. Um, the challenge of nationalism, something Rana and I are always arguing about um, <laughs> for the last several years. Um, what do we do? And at base, I think there, there is a question there of um, the exceptional versus the normal. And that is, I think, a question that um, liberation struggles generally and Palestine definitely has been wrestling with um, for a long time. Rena, uh, Mazna, I am so moved by the politics of listening. I think that is an incredible way for us to um, think about how do we approach Palestine studies and Palestine's place in um, teaching us about liberation more broadly. And this invitation of compassion to our ancestors, I think, is so crucial. I mean, for me, I think one of the things that happens is that we forget how um, long we've been with some people. So I was telling the story to Tarit the other day about going through um, my own personal archives in my parents' basement. 
um, my high school, my my high school years, and finding there um, Saeed and also Rima Hamami and also Ghassan Kenafani and also Anton Shamas, and thinking, wow, I have been with these people basically since I started independently reading. Um, so that kind of companionship, really um, asking for compassion, I think is is really crucial. Um, Noor. Lettered life, I think, is like one of the main methodological kind of invitations I will take away from all of you. Lettered life as a way of thinking about and as a way of surviving and also challenging the temporalities um, that keep us separate. And, and I think taught it, you know, your insistence on bringing us together with so much um, with such abundant generosity, but also seeing that togetherness as a method and as a feminist method. And I do want to give a shout out to the people in this room and the people who are hopefully listening in, who are part of the Palestine, the Palestinian Feminist Collective, which is a um, collaborative and feminist group who's really committed to doing that kind of practice of togetherness. Um, as a as a as a as a feminist practice of liberation. So what I'm going to do now um, in the time that we have remaining is, and you've all sort of spoken about this to a certain extent, um, um, which is kind of transition to our second question, which is what are the responsibilities of scholars writing about Palestine? Um, so I'll hand it to you, Rena. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Nadine and Shireen again, um, and Noor and Tarek and Mezna, obviously, for, for being here, but it's Nadine and Shireen for bringing us together and um, letting me be a part of this. Um, it's late at night here and it's dark, so I feel like I'm the one that's like uh, getting ready to go to sleep. So I, I didn't know how to answer this question. Um, but if you guys look to the right under attendees, you'll see a name, Adla Barakat, and that's my mom. My mom's in this room. My mom follows me. Um, I haven't seen my mom since January 4th, 2020. Um, and I miss my mom. But I think one of the responsibilities that I feel, and that's all the work that I've been doing lately, is um, I'm trying to finish this book about Lifta. And I, you know, I claim that it's about Lifta, and I claim that it's about the Nakba, and I claim it's about sort of understanding how we can write our own histories and employing indigenous methodologies and I'm searching for these stories of my grandmother and I am, but <clears throat> it's really about my mom. Um, and I think that's the responsibility that I feel. Um, and that's the legacy. And I share with Mezna what she was saying about the intellectual legacies and, and the mercy that is necessary. And I think that we have, right? Um, but I think that's what I mean about the personal. So it's like a shout out to my mom, but it's also about sort of that's a responsibility that I feel. This is this is what I'm working on. I'm not, this isn't only some intellectual exercise, um, as important as that is, obviously. And it's a political practice as important as that is, but it's wired inside of me. It's part of who I am and it's how I breathe. Um, and so breathing and writing and thinking responsibly is, is, is that for me? Um, I'm not going to cry. Don't worry. Um, I don't, I didn't know where to begin with this question and I saw my mom's name. So I, I thought 
you know, I have to, I have to say that to my mom because I actually was going to talk about how angry I am all the time. Um, and this is something that Shitty and I also talk about, um, let the force feel down, but I am, I'm just always angry. I have, I have to admit that. Um, and this rage is in no small part due to the, the people on what I work with on the spaces that I work in and the confinement that I feel in that. Um, and I think that's also part of the conversation. And I think it's okay to talk about our anger. I think it's necessary and generative to talk about it, but I think anger and rage, we have, I have to be careful. And this is something that I've learned over time is that it's like this fire and it's useful and it's generative, but it can also burn you. So I think it's important for me to think about that as far as a responsibility towards myself and my people and our peoplehood and each other. Um, and that speaks to how I think that we work together. We're aware of that. And that speaks to the mercy that Mesna was talking about. So I kind of want to just tell a story. Um, and it's a really local story with the specificities and the problematics of exceptionalization. So for the past several years, and this is an ironic story and I, it's not so ironic. Um, and I say this with that, with the mercy that we are calling for and the grace that, that is who we are. Last few years, we've had this huge battle at Beardsaids. And this is ironic because it's about getting the administration to literally, literally recognize our work in Palestine and Palestinian studies as legitimate work. Towards tenure, towards what we teach, towards how we teach. It's a battle that has many fronts, both on campus, in Palestine, amongst those of us who work in the field and throughout the world. And I think it's not all that ironic that it's happening at Beersaid. It's most certainly not just about institutionalization and institutional questions, but it's also and quite uncomfortably about recognition. And that kind of recognition is related to a lot of what we're talking about. And I have a very, very difficult time finding a language for that. Nadine and Shadeen's work have helped me through this. There's obviously a genealogy for Palestine and Palestinian studies. There's obviously a long history of what, from where we come as people, as persons, as Rana, and what we write about, what we think about, what we're fighting for, terms of, in terms of liberation, and it's not always in terms of liberation, right? That's what Mesna was speaking to. And I think that not always is worth a pause. It's part of Palestine studies. State building is part of this field. There's an inherent problem there. And I think we can talk about that. Maybe we can think about that in the terms of why Rana's always angry, and maybe that's the fire that I wanna think about. Maybe self-determination can be sought about outside of those confinements. Maybe we're the ones that can think about that using and borrowing and speaking with peoples from other places and methodologies as Nadine was talking about. Maybe peoplehood without borders is something that Palestine can teach the world. A politics that's not about identity, but about positionality. So when I think about this, I think about not only why is Palestine, how is Palestine studies institutionalized? I think about what it it means that it is institutionalized and the different kinds of you know how that can cut in very different ways and how that kind of institutionalization is also part and parcel of another kind of colonial legacy so this brings me to the other side of that same coin this fight that we're having at Beers 8 because it's where i am and this is how i think about things because it's a national institution it claims itself to be one we now have a historian as our president and it's claiming itself to be a palestinian national institution that might not struggle with nationalism in the same way that I do, and perhaps it does. But the other side of this coin is how Palestine is also exceptionalized by Palestinians. And that's in, I find that in my own teaching and in my own work with students, and this is uncomfortable to talk about, but it's really true. How small our intellectual worlds have become here. How Palestine 
the Palestine that is this small part of the world, it's not just Palestine, I don't mean to make that claim, but where I am here is utterly an echo chamber at times. Why is that? Where is this audience? Why are we not in conversation? How can we be in better conversation with each other? I think these are the kind of questions that we can ask. The alternative has been for far too long to be in conversation with the settlers. And personally, I'm not concerned with arguing with Zionists or people who work from, from or through a Zionist agenda. It's important work. Good folks are doing it. It's just not where I'm at. This is why I often say I'm not interested in producing a counter narrative because I feel like that still centers Zionists, even when we're tearing that narrative apart and down. Could there be another way? Is there a chance for another way? Of course there is. And I think that's what we're here to talk about because this too is part of this genealogy. There has always been another way. We just have to go back and read it. In part, it's because we have this space to talk. It's because JPS has been this space. But I want to acknowledge and I want to talk about what was embedded within this question. And I suppose even though I was not there, thought it, what was the, was the part of the conversation that was being had in 2019 at Mesa is that we're not reinventing the wheel. What does it mean that we're adding to a conversation and what kind of responsibilities does that entail? The same kind of responsibility I think that I began with, which is, acknowledging and saying hi to my mom who's here because that kind of intellectual legacy is also our own familial legacies. Wow. <laughs> There's not much I can add to that really. I mean, I, the, the only thing I, I, I thought about, one of the things I thought about when you were speaking as well is you know, sometimes there's almost a heavy focus on, you know, we're, we're so concerned about thinking through and with, you know, from Palestine and us being Palestinian. And I was thinking the other day how so much of really how I think about everything else is also Palestinian, not in a national sense, but in an ethic sense. So Palestine is ethic just as much as method. And so I'm thinking about this as somebody who's not in Palestine, but in the Shatat. And what are the set of questions that I obsess over in any space, political, intellectual? Who's missing? Why are they missing? How do I bring them in from the cold? These kinds of questions um, of the disappeared who are forcibly disappeared come from our own disappearances, us being disappeared, but also from a sensibility that is about a kind of stubborn willfulness that is, you know, that is not necessarily this kind of individuated contrarianism, right? Like I'm gonna have an opinion that is different than everybody else's opinion, right? But more this idea of insisting on spaces of deliberation and contention, brave spaces where we can disagree. And I want, to never ever feel a sense that someone has left the room because they don't have, we didn't hold the ability or space as the language now says, you know, we didn't involve them. We're under conditions now in Palestine studies, both in Palestine and outside of Palestine, where our ability to speak on Palestine and ourselves and Palestinians is being crushed systemically. I mean, I'm I'm of the more I'm on the more pessimistic end of the the new discourse about breaking dams and tides shifting. I'm not so sure. I see instead 
a steady encroachment against our ability to speak. And I question and I always think about how I as a, Palestine, a Palestinian scholar on Palestine must always be at the vanguard that insists on keeping deliberation possible, on keeping debate possible, sincere <laughs> um, uh, inquiry, um, um, you know, um, central. That's at the scale of kind of intellectual um, debate. But I also do think about it in terms of the, who we think of when we think of the Palestinians and who gets left off the table. And by which I mean, not just the quote unquote masses, but the fascists, the right-wing Palestinians, the Palestinians who are not part of the Palestinian struggle, but are part of other struggles. Palestinians who did not find a way back to being Palestinian after their expulsion, found other ways of being in the world that we may not index as Palestinian anymore. There are countless stories of forgotten Palestinians who we wish we should claim for ourselves. Um, and for me, the, you know, my exploration of Haiti is an exploration of some of those Palestinians. Um, so yeah, I agree. With, I, and I think that there is something too about here uh, when it comes to citation where <laughs> I, you know, there's this tension in citation, I think, between its kind of institutional discourse around citation being an index of notability, respect, um, adjudication of hierarchies of knowledge, of, 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 of you know, citation as being an index of who is um, to be accorded time and space and, read, and reading, the metrics of citation. And a rejection of that is important and crucial. And that is also part of that ethic, right? A rejection of these metrics and a different kind of definition and understanding of citation that leaves, gives room for collaborative thinking, collective discourse, movement spaces as also thinking spaces, right? How do you cite a movement? How do you cite a movement space? How do you not extract? All of those kinds of politics are bound up with Palestine as an ethic, I think. Thanks, Mosna. You're, you're just giving me perfect transitions every, all day. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, in geography officially as a discipline. And in geography, we joke often that when space, you know, the concept of space and scale uh, become very sexy in other disciplines and interdisciplinary fields, as they have actually recently in Middle East studies, for example, it's both hilarious and infuriating that people seem to be employing these concepts as if there isn't an entire literature and discipline that has been dedicated to it and debates within it for decades. And that kind of sense of walking into a room and looking around and going, what is happening? Um, when geographers see, right, these bizarre applications of central concepts with no citation or engagement with their history. That's basically how everyone in Palestinian studies or scholars of Palestine feel every day, right? Um, and most of, you know, the question of responsibility, most of the responsibilities of writing about Palestine that come to mind, such as, you know, recognition of settler colonial context, Israeli violence, and need to cite and engage with Palestinian authors, they apply across the board, right? Regardless of demographic or discipline. But others are also more unique to your field. 
Um, and what I mean by that is not methodology or style, but instead what so many of us have mentioned already, which is thinking critically about what Palestine provides. Um, we wrote collectively uh, in, in Palestine and Praxis in, in May, uh, this sentence, right? Approaching Palestine as a field of knowledge rather than as a case study or site of theoretical extraction demands engaging with the intellectual labor of people, of its people as a genealogy of subjugated knowledge and praxis. And that is about citation, yes. But more importantly, it goes back to what I talked about earlier, lettered life, right? Palestine is not a site of post-colonial thought, but one of ongoing anti-colonial struggle. And as such, our first wave has not yet broken, if we want to continue the metaphor, and receded from shore. It is still swelling and rising higher as it approaches. And it is our responsibility, in my opinion, as scholars to watch it closely, not assume that it has vanished, right? So what Palestine provides is an opportunity, not a checklist for comparison. And writing on and through Palestine is itself an intervention and forces us to ask questions that challenge our assumptions, not only on things like settler colonialism, but on the presence relationship to indigeneity, to power, empire, and much more. So in each of our disciplines, Palestine has the potential to do work in incredibly different and yet astonishingly similar ways. And particularly here in the US and in Europe, where complicity in Israeli colonization is abundant, um, we have to also be mindful that scholarship not only exposes and explores Palestine, but it interacts with it as a place and with Palestinians as a collective in very real ways already, right? Um, as uh, Fadi Judah wrote uh, in an essay, full disclosure, my brother, um, earlier this, this summer, uh, right? As subject of foreign policy and as local newcomer, not yet a bona fide American, Palestine in English is doubly distanced and Palestine in English navigates the, ga the gatekeeping English imposes on Palestine. Yes, we have to continue to reach back for the Kenafanis and for the thousands of family letters and oral histories and untranslated Arabic work and op-eds, but publishing in, on Palestine is also a microcosm of much larger processes and repressions. And as scholars, we also have a responsibility to refuse the gatekeeping around us. And for non-Palestinians in particular, a responsibility to not only give nod to Palestinian academics, as Nesna mentioned, and citation as, as a matter of course, but to our poets, to our novelists, to our painters, to our filmmakers, um, both from the past and in the present, those living in Palestine and those living in exile, those writing in Arabic and those in English or German or Spanish or, or, or. And uh, finally, I wanna end on something that is perhaps more for Palestinians specifically across generations, but particularly for junior scholars. And Mezna already touched on this a bit, as did uh, Rana, and I'm guessing also probably Shirin and Nadin will in, in their comments. Um, being contrarian and, and being critical isn't the same thing. Um, and for a generation so interested in talking about transformative justice, we seem more interested in debating it than practicing it with one another. Um, I'll end the way I started, which is a story on Kenafani, and I won't get into the weeds about what it was that I discovered via my father and his contemporaries, but let's just say I was, you know, privy to a story that broke my heart a little bit, 
And I felt this twinge of feeling like a hero of mine kind of collapsed in front of me. And this was many years ago. And so sitting in a room of very old Palestinian communists, I asked them, you know, I said, how can you, how can you tell me this story so calmly? Why aren't you angrier about what Kenafani did, what happened between you? And they looked me dead in the eye and said, well, we forgave him. And he was an Arab nationalist then, they made light of it and joked, he didn't know better yet, he learned. And we know, he said, we know that he would have never done it again. And let me tell you, these men and women, they meant it with every fiber of their being. And it wasn't because Kenafani had been killed that they were trying to let bygones be bygones. It was because in the less than eight years from the incident to the time they forgave before Kenafani was assassinated, they did the work to understand each other and to see who they were to each other despite it. And this isn't just applicable to how we organize in our justice movements, though it certainly is. It also applies to how we write about ourselves, about our genealogies, about our exile, our occupation, and most importantly, about how we write about each other. Um, so I'm gonna stop there. Thank you, Noor. Noor, it all flows well because we're all having the same conversation on, on like wherever we are, especially just like it makes sense. It, it, there's a shared literacy and language even across different disciplines. It, I, uh, yeah. Um, anyways, <clears throat> so what is the responsibility? Rather than tell it, I hope that I can continue to show it. Uh, and I hope that doesn't break up the way this conversation goes. If a Palestinian uh, feminist practice of centering the lives of Palestinians struggling for liberation reveals to us a knowledge that one, resists, resists historical erasure, or we could say enacts Palestinian presence, and two, provides us with a method to enact that presence, then it is the practice that becomes the responsibility. Within our condition, the citational politics of everyone here isn't just tracing, about tracing a genealogy of thought, which is so important as it informs practice. But as everyone has said, it's also about mapping and repairing networks of connection. It's about resisting our perpetual separation. And when we understand it in this way, I think the responsibility becomes to expand and deepen the connections that have always been there, as Rana is you know, pointing to us in her work. Um, so like Mezna and Shireen, Nadine, Rana, and Noor's work all provides us with a method that informs this responsibility within and beyond the, the classroom. For example, Nadine's uh, diasporic Arab feminism pushes us to understand the ways in which the inside and outside of culture function to circumscribe issues of patriarchy and homophobia within our community. More specifically, in decolonizing culture, Nadine uses her position as an Arab American woman to put forth a diasporic Arab feminist theory that can grapple with the gendered and sexual constructions of our identity. In doing so, you provide us with an understanding of how culture is structured by relations of exclusion, entangled with Orientalist, imperialist forms of representation. But for our memory, I attended Nadine's workshop on designing liberatory uh, research projects in the fall of 2020, and this attention to the interplay of our various insider-outsider positions is the very method through which she empowers us to, quote, claim and name our creative core beliefs, end quote, in service of honing methodologies grounded in accountable disciplinarity. And what I understand this accountable disciplinarity mean from your teachings is that knowledge is prescriptive and we have a responsibility to bring together the theories and methods best suited to solve our specific problems, as you said in our introduction. 
uh, Rena, in writing, writing Palestine studies, settler colonialism, indigenous sovereignty, and resisting the ghost of history, your attention to the political value of our analytical frameworks and the positionality of those deploying them enacts this pr process precisely. In reading Palestinian history through the frame of indigeneity, you not only open up epistemological possibilities beyond those that have been occluded by nationalist frameworks, but you create possibilities for connections and recognition with other indigenous people that only makes it easier, easier for us to see ourselves. So thank you for gifting us with a path, a path to indigenous studies that locates our people as makers of history, as you have said, uh, and that is grounded in the Palestinian feminist practice, which you all show us to be the set of relations that keep us safe. Again, it's no surprise that Shireen introduced us and our first meeting included people like Dean Serenilio and Jay Kilani Kawanui, who have gifted me with so many insights to indigenous resurgence through the concept of Aloha'ena, which in, in many ways have made this um, level of recognition today possible as well. On, on your personal, your return to our past to open up new possibilities for our future is something you quite literally embody in your everyday pra practice of on, an ongoing return to Palestine. Your return practices, uh, let me slow down, I'm just getting nervous thinking about you all. Alright, I'm back. Your return enacts a Palestinian presence on the land that gave me back a part of my imagination. I think a part of the responsibility here to, is to name that inspiration in hopes to make it more expansive and to create more possibilities of return. Thank you. There's like nothing else to say beyond that. Uh, and I don't want to take up more time, especially as the only man on this panel. So let me just stay tight on time. Oof, Noor. There's too many memories for us, of course. Uh, the last time that I saw you was at NDPS, where you were presenting on Palestinian countermapping through documentation and design as a form of decolonial praxis that straddles reclaiming our past and future imaginaries. These one-sentence summaries was an exercise, I will tell you that. Of course, mapping uh, is a process of representation, and your most recent work on Gaza as site and method seeks to disrupt the symbolic representations of we, what we might consider to be a settler city through centering indigenous presence over settler permanence. Now, for our memory, we can choose to periodize our relationship through the projects uh, that we've done together or the moments of rupture that demanded them, whether that be Gaza in context or Palestine as praxis. I feel as if we've been grappling with the question of symbolic representation for the last seven years. For, for me, our relationship is an expression of what you describe to be as Gaza as site and method. It has both been the site that has oriented the direction of our collaborative work, as well as provided the method through which we informed connection, responsibility, networks of care, and established ties to Palestine when our presence has been denied. Bashara Domani notes an important distinction between Palestinian and Palestine studies, and that the former enables us to imagine Palestine beyond the territory. If we were to create a map of experience based on our relationship, I think it would reveal a Palestinian presence that is not as disconnected as our spatial fragmentation would like us to believe. Um, somehow with all of the loss that my family experienced this last year on top of having a ban, I feel much closer and connected to Palestine than I did on the first day that we met. And that is thanks to you and so many other people here that time constraints will not let me pull in uh, to this moment of recognition. Uh, I really also wanted to bring in my tata and my mom, Zainab Asad and Rana Asad. And last names really aren't up for thinking about citational politics should just be lobbed off, but that's another question. Um, so with that, I hope that the memories that I've tried to archive today demonstrate that the responsibility to deepen and expand this practice is never complete.
We're never going to do it in one event. It has to be a constant process of recognition, of seeing each other. And in doing so, we'll see each other much more completely. Um, it's going to be an ongoing process that's going to be filled with moments of joy and loss and opportunities to overcome conflict and heal trauma. And it's going to require us to think abundantly and be generous with uh, one another as the women on this panel have exercised in their scholarship and beyond. If we're, if we're going to continue to understand the ongoing nekba as our separation from each other, then I would argue that it's moments like these where we come together to recognize our intellectual tradition and our responsibility to it and each other that shows the way that a Palestinian feminist praxis provides us with the method and responsibility to map and repair the networks of connection upon which our survival uh, depends. So again, thank you all for all that you have gifted me with and all that you continue to gift us with. And I can't wait for this to hopefully be an ongoing conversation of figuring out what, what does that responsibility look like? Thank you. Thank you all. This has been so rich and capacious. Um, before I hand it to um, Nadine, I'm just going to, again, do a kind of roundup of all the beautiful things I learned from each of you today and, you know, for the last <laughs> decade or so. Um, I want to highlight really this. I want to make four points. One is on ethic and method. And I think here um, we see a really beautiful um, transgression uh, and bringing together uh, a transgression of the binaries between and a bringing together of the political and the personal. And Adla, uh, we are so happy you're here and uh, we embrace all of our mothers and fathers and great grandfathers and great grandmothers who are with us in every moment. Um, and I think Nadine as um, thought it reminds us of this insider outsider uh, uh, as a disciplinary formation, I think is really um, crucial to the accountable disciplinarity that you're all calling for. Um, not a counter, but the narrative, I think is very powerful. Um, not a counter, but the map, a multiplicity of maps. And I think, here also always as Mazna was inviting us as to you know consistently ask the uncomfortable questions to tell the stories that we're scared to tell and that we don't want to tell that we might have some shame around um emotions anger <laughs> Rana um and her incredible sort of centering of both anger and immense love and I think again those both as guiding lights for us um compassion and mercy from Mazna um forgiveness forgiveness um Noor I I'm going to take that with me um just this power of forgiveness um, a forgiveness of harm and forgiveness as really uh, the way forward and taught it modeling recognition really I mean we owe you such a debt for your model and everything that you continue to teach us and this kind of you know creating family out of separation I think is what we all do together in a in a really really powerful way and um <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think one of the things to be thinking about too, when we're thinking about this um, struggle of optimism and pessimism. So Mazna was saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not as happy, I'm not as 
convinced that we're breaking the dams, which is something um, Nuraraka was in this room, even if not with us um, on the screen, <laughs> um, has been saying. And and Mazna rightly, I mean, we've been in so many legal, um, I mean, Palestine legal, another force to reckon with that has kept us all sane and the thousands of cases that they are, you know, constantly defending people against assault and silencing. And I, and, and I think that we have a tradition for this co, you know, this, 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 um, this, this way that deep pessimism and deep optimism is our reality. And that is the PESA optimist. You remember, Mazna, that last, you know, NDPS, I think it was the last time many of us saw, saw each other in person. And, you know, Emil Habibi gave us a way to think about this, right? He gave us a way to think about it in the 1970s um, of this intense figure of the pessimist, uh, the pessimist, right? Somebody who sees the glass as both um, half empty and half full, <laughs> um, I think. And I think in there, I do want to really insist on our role both in terms of imagination and method and practice in thinking about the Nakba as an ongoing structure and also as an ongoing structure for so many people um, uh, in the Middle East, in the Arab world. And I think that one of the erasures that often happens um, that's so troubling for me is how Palestine comes to into being as somehow isolated or differentiated from the world that it is in. Um, and so I think one of the responsibilities that I really want to impart on people, you know, um, is to engage the history that Palestine is part of, to engage Middle East studies, right? To be reading in the languages that people um, write in, to be really understanding Palestine as a space of imagination and as a space of cultural, territorial, social history in continuity with the places around it. And I think that actually um, is also, there's a, you know, um, North African feminists have often said, right, Moroccan feminists have often said that in this part of the world, there's a small Palestine and a larger Palestine. And the larger Palestine is one that is abundant and inclusive and speaks to the multiple Nakbas that people in Iraq, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Syria, um, throughout um, the world that we live in and our families are from uh, continue to survive. So I think I'll hand it over to Nadine with that. <laughs> this was just so incredible. I just feel like um, it was far beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Um, you know, we started out with these questions like, tell us your favorite essay or what's your citational practice? And we received just so much more than that. Um, and it really was just a game changing conversation. Um, it almost made those original questions um to me they challenge the original questions because the original questions 
I think could 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 be somewhat reactive, like um, responding to injustices of the academic industrial complex of you know disciplines of Zionism and colonization. But what each of you did is you demanded that we um, we uh, commit to you know, self-determination in how we do our work. And I think, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, you you challenged me, all of you, each of you, by um, by opening up a possibility for thinking about what we're doing. I mean, you know, and, and Rana said this, all of you said it in different ways of you know, challenging the that the work that we're doing is about creating counter narratives um, or unsettling the violence, but instead beginning from our groundedness in the knowledges and histories of communities of kinship of, you know, um, our relationships with each other, our ties, our memories, our anger, our vision, um, you know, the, the people we we see as our people, the, 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 the communities that we see as our communities of belonging. Um, oh, my headphone just fell out. Can you still hear me? Okay. Um, that was the fire, right? <laughs> my headphone just popped off my ear because <laughs> of all of your brilliance. Um, and we see, a, you know, we saw in, in your words, a refusal to allow the violence of coloniality and the colonial university to break us. Um, and that's what I meant by non-reactive work. Um, we saw, um, you know, so much more than a discussion of our academic erasure or the academic erasure of, you know, Palestinian historical scholarship. But, and we saw that, and we we talked about that. But we also um, gained an awareness of Palestine as a as method, drawing from Shadeen's, you know, brilliant um, work around that for so many years, and a site of power um, uh, of power, really, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Palestine studies, I think from your words, um, you know, just uh, is um, presents as more expansive than ever before. The panels were full of um, collective intuition rooted in family, community histories, academic knowledges, grassroots theory making, um, panelists were calibrating expansive future possibilities of what's to come um, for Palestine studies across fields, across borders. Um, there was an awesome power, I guess I'll say it again, of non-reactive thought, the feminist themes, of, I think of cleaning up our house if we are to overcome external colonial violence. You know, I think all of you, that is I think part of what Rana was saying um, or how I interpret it of not just reacting or doing the counter narrative work, but um, part of that is, and so it's not just about uplifting, you know, our visions or visions from the ground, but also of the hard work of looking within and, and I'll say it again, like cleaning up our house, like what thought it referred to referencing the internal and external work that's simultaneous. And that's really what I'm uplifting this whole time um, is that, you know, just while Zionist attacks continue to target our people, our movements, our campuses. The question really that you put on the table is, um, do we, how do we take that in? Do we let it 
do we let it um, uh, uh, make us become stuck? Um, or do we do the work, um, the labor that's involved in how we show up? Um, do we activate allowance and you know, possibilities? Do we get pulled by the current of academic violence and colonization? Do, or do we let the environments that we exist in um, grow our work? Or do we let the environments we exist in use our work, exploit Palestine studies? Um, this is all to me about the responsibilities that, were, that you all brought to the table, far beyond the questions that we asked. Um, do we become captive you know, to these challenges? Or do we set boundaries um, and, and the different boundaries? This isn't like a one size fits all or that all of you said the same thing, but what we saw was a setting boundaries, um, you know, decolonial boundary setting by that consistent regrounding. Um, that's where I saw the momentum in this panel um, with the brave spaces, with Palestine as ethics, with mothering and displacement as genealogies of thought and practice, with insisting on the forgotten Palestinians um, as part of our stories, all of, you know, all of the forgotten Palestinians, um, the collective spaces, the, the insistence on movement theories, the insistence on fields of knowledge versus sites of extraction, um, site of anti-colonial struggle, um, that Palestine studies really is the knowledge production as a site of anti-colonial struggle that, you know, that we see swelling and rising with this, the boundary setting that, that you all um, show, showed us, um, resisting our separation, right? The connectivity, the family, the grassroots histories, the kinship, the ancestors, the anger, the mothers. So really, I mean, I just think you all, um, rather than just coming up with these answers, you, uh, what's the word, you, operationalized you you showed us how to do it how you do it um and and that you you um you put it in practice right you showed us how you practice um so thank you <laughs>